This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to another week of the Talk of Fame Network. And Ronnie, uh, this comes right after we just got through with what they called a bomb cyclone here in the Northeast. You know, we... I, I don't. I don't get that. I'm just wondering: Does bomb cyclone refer to the Arctic freeze we just had, or is it what's going on with your New England Patriots? Yeah, well, I was more like a uh, Foxborough meltdown. <laughs> Eighteen years, it appears, uh, as often happens in long marriages. Uh, a new young thing, Jimmy G, comes along, gets between the great hoodie in the sky, TB12, and the guy named after a mac and cheese company. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Gooseman, what'd you make of that story down in Dallas? The bomb cyclone? <laughs> yeah, the bomb cyclone in New England. Uh, it doesn't really matter. If it, if it was the Cowboys, it would be something. There's only one team that matters in this town. <laughs> Everybody else is secondary. They still play football in that town? The Stars? Yeah. Really <laughs> hey, so what do you guys, seriously, what do you expect from the Super Bowl champions this weekend, Ron? Uh, look, I have a hard time seeing how the Titans can beat the Patriots unless the conditions preclude you know any form of passing which i don't think is going to be the case you know if it's if they can somehow make it a ground and pound game the titans have better runners frankly and a better run defense but unfortunately the brady's have an air force and the titans have been grounded uh and you know uh i will look at it this way this road dog is really a dog yeah right who's man yeah I, I expect the pages to become the first team this postseason to cover the spread it's a Ooh. big number 13 and a half points but i expect new england to win by three scores well i'm with you Goose. it's not new england I'm, I'm really concerned about this week as much as it is the really the quality of officiating which let's be honest it really hasn't been all that good this season and that's my segue into saying we're gonna talk about that with one of our favorite guests that'd be former nfl director of officiating Mike Pereira, and we're going to sit down with Hall of Fame GM Bill Pullian, another of our favorite guests, get his take on this year's Hall of Fame finalists, and also join us will be Hall of Fame voter Sam Kavaris from Jacksonville to give us a lowdown on the Jags and Hall of Fame candidate Tony Baselli as we start our countdown to Canton. Yeah, uh, of, the four, of the 17 players in the belt, 14 are all decade selections, including seven first-teamers. We only have five seats. Read them and weep. Okay, well, we've got a lot to get to and not much time to get there, so let's get going. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Hall of Famer and friend of the show, Eric Dickerson, last week he said something uh, on the NFL No Huddle, a show called the NFL No Huddle with Cordell Stewart. Uh, he said something that, that, that threw me, and he said basically that the Hall of Fame should blow up the voting process because... And I quote, some of these writers, they hold a grudge. Well, he didn't talk to me. Didn't talk to my buddy. Treated me this way so I can keep him out of Canton. Look, sports writers, they really don't know who can play, unquote. He then went on to lobby for Dexter Manley for the Hall of Fame, just as he did on the show when we had him on here last year. (laughs) Uh, Hang on, hang on, hang on. And he concluded by saying essentially that players, not writers, should vote on candidates because, as he put it, quote, 
it has to be something to take away all this power from sports writers, unquote. We've already gotten your reaction, Ron. Go see your reaction. Well, I, I'm in favor of improving the selection process so that more worthy candidates are discussed and the right ones are enshrined. If it means taking the vote away from the writers, okay. If the players do a better job, fine. Give them the vote. I think the finer process is far more complex and difficult once they get inside that room because no matter who you pick, it's perceived as the wrong guys. And it doesn't matter who picks them. If retired players covered this responsibility, give it to them. Then check check back with me in five years after you've walked in our shoes. Wow. Here's what I know, and I don't know much. But I know when they said to Eric Dickerson, what do you think about Kramer being up for the Hall of Fame this year? He said, the guy from Seinfeld, those sports writers don't know diddly. <laughs> hey, Goose, I, I know you've said this before. you said it's on the show before many times. You just said, again, the process could be or should be overhauled. But but just just guess here, I, I don't think this is what you had in mind. No, I put together a blue-ribbon panel of veteran football observers, coaches, GMs, personnel directors, historians, and let them choose the slate of finalists. You can still have the writers and broadcasters serve as the selection committee, discussing, debating, and voting on the finalists in that meeting the day before the Super Bowl. But have veteran eyes assemble the slate so that great players don't slip through the cracks like they do now. As a fellow member of the senior committee, I think Ron will agree with me. Too many great players never get a chance to have their careers judged. That has to change. Well, Ron, since he mentioned you, I want to ask you this. I mean, one of Eric's criticism was that writers see a game, which he said is, is here or there. Basically, they see a game here or there. They don't, as he put it, quote, see you every week, unquote. Except for one thing. I mean, Eric Dickerson, he saw Dexter Manley here or there. The guy who covered him at Washington, the beat reporter, he saw him not only every week, he saw him every day, and he's sure. not pushing him for the hall. Yeah. I mean, most of the time I would think Eric Dixon wanted to see Manley there, not here, <laughs> uh, if he was in facing him. You know? Now, look, uh, who sees everybody every week? That would be God. And if you believe the number of times he used to say he was watching tape at NFL Films, also Ron Jaworski. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, writers with grudges. Or Mel Kuyper. <laughs> exactly. I mean... Uh, if, if the writers were holding grudges, Warren Sapp wouldn't be allowed into the city of Canton, let alone in the Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, what's, what's he talking about? And as for the players, the players, Eric, thought so much of Dexter Manley, they, the players, voted him to the Pro Bowl once. Right, right. There well, you Goose, go. I, you, you know what this sounds like to me, Goose, man? It, it just, it sounds like another guy who has a one-player agenda, or maybe it's two or three, I don't know. But, but I've heard you say it before, and I agree with you. Most people who criticize the process, or, or the voters, the vote, whatever, uh, do it because they have a particular candidate they're pushing. For instance, uh, each of the past few years, of course, we've heard from outraged T.O. voters, as well as Owens himself, uh, who demand that he get in the hall, and he get in now. Now. You put him in. But you've been in that room for over two decades, Goose, and, and what I like about it is that few, if any, voters that have agendas, like, like some of these guys who are honking for candidates. I mean, it's a wide-open process with a litany of work, study, evaluation, whatever, done by voters, and you can't appreciate it unless you're in that room. Well, let me take you inside the room. Is a player who was a second-team all-decade pick, went to six Pro Bowls, and never won a championship, more worthy of Hall of Fame election than a player who was a first-team all-decade pick, went to nine Pro Bowls, and did win a title? Yet all the complaints about us in recent years have been directed at the omission of Owens, a second-team all-decade player. Where was the outrage over the omission of Alan Fanica? He was um, 
on the ballot with Owens, went to those nine yeah. Pro Bowls, was a first-team yeah. all-decade guy. Those of us on the committee have a 15-player agenda, not a one-player agenda. Right. right, right. I mean, the easiest thing in the world, as we all know, is to sit there and criticize and say, why isn't player X in there? But whenever you say to those people, well, okay, which one of these guys are you going to throw out? Oh, well, I'm not saying that. Well, no, actually you are, bro, because that's how right. it works. You know, that's my – actually, I, I postulated this once in a column. People went crazy here in Boston. Uh, I was talking about the baseball hall. Founder. I said they should really change the rules for baseball because there's too many people in it. To put somebody in, you have to throw somebody out who's in there. <laughs> you know, really? You want to yeah. really take it to the absurd? Let's do it that way. How long do you think Eric Dickerson will be in there? Yeah, no, I, I remember when Goose was on TV. The, I think it was the NFL Network several years ago. And I think Rod Woodson was talking to you, Goose. And, and he was criticizing the, the process. And oh, I remember goes, that. Okay. That was great. Uh, yeah, who do you want to take out? Who do you want to take out and put your guy in? Uh, there was silence. <laughs> there was silence. <laughs> you put um, him down, anyway. Goose, man. You put him down. <laughs> Well, let's leave uh, Eric Dickerson and, and go to the board where we're going to have uh, 15 Hall of Fame finalists. We addressed them last week, and we're going to continue to address them this month as we get down to our February 3rd voting. But first, Goose, um, please tell us news. And Eric Dickerson, uh, again, what happens when we go into that room, which I think is scheduled for, I think, a 7 a.m. start this year. Yes, sir. We discuss and debate individually the two senior and the contributor candidates. Then we vote on the three men individually, yes or no. All three can go in. None can go in. It depends on the vote. There are 48 members of the committee. Ten no votes eliminate a candidate. Then we discuss and debate individually the 15 modern era candidates. Some discussions may last an hour, as was the case with Al Davis, Paul Tagliabue, and more recently, Terrell Owens. Some discussions last three or four minutes. When we finish the discussion, we vote the, ten, the 15 down to 10. After we get to 10, there's another window of discussion, maybe 15, 20 minutes. If anything has anything else to say, say it now. Then we vote the 10 down to 5. Once we get to five, they all become subjected to that yes-no vote. Those who receive at least 39 votes become members of the class of 2018. Ron, I see you have something to say, so say it now. You're going to be presenting one of those candidates. That's cornerback in front of the show, Ty Law. It's the second straight year. He's a finalist. Of course, last year was a top-ten choice, but he didn't make the cut from ten to five. So what are the challenges for someone like you? Because you present a candidate for the second straight year, and I guess what I'm asking is, what can you tell us in that room that we don't already know? Well, that's a little bit of a challenge. You're right, because nothing's changed in his career, obviously. His numbers are in the books. Uh, he accomplished what he accomplished, which I feel is quite a lot, and in his Hall of Fame worthy. So you, you need to either find some new hook or some way to repackage uh, what he's done, his numbers, his achievements, and so forth. And it's a little tricky, uh, but I believe if you're presenting someone who belongs and they get to the final ten, uh, it indicates to me that a lot of people in the room realize uh, he's a Hall of Famer, and you just have to... I think to a degree, remind them of uh, of that without being, you know, kind of an obnoxious, irking Eric Dickerson clone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Goose, um, again, as I said, you've been in that room a long time, so you know this. I, I think it was Lynn Swan who made it in the hall in his 14th try as a finalist, Correct. And, Correct. And, and that's that's a lot of presentations by the guy who's the Pittsburgh voter, and, and that guy is Ed Bouchette, good friend of ours, but Ed's been doing it for a long time. Goose, I know you were in the room then. What's it like to hear a candidate presented for the 14th time? Well, the, the presentations become shorter because we've all heard all there is to hear about Lynn Swan after his fifth or sixth time in a room. You know, when I presented repeaters such as a Michael Urban or a Rafa Wright, I felt incumbent 
that I had to alter the presentation and add something new and different to the discussion each year. And that's tough to do after five or six years. Yeah, no, I agree. That's it's uh, uh, you know if you if you've if you sat in there and listened to a number of these, uh, you do have to sort of fight your eyes glazing over. You know, listen, oh, and no, I've heard this for eleven times, uh, and that's a, you know it's a sticky calculus for the presenter uh, yeah. to to work. You know, what usually helps is if you, if you can come up with something that you haven't said before. But I've, I I got to say, after fourteen times, yeah. I don't know what I'd say. I probably would stand up and say. Hey, you know this dude. You want to vote for him? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, what else can you say? Yeah. You, you put one of those Joe Montanas, you just go, Lynn Swan, sit down. Right. Will it help You've if I sit down? All. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Well, there's no one on the list in that position now. But we do have a couple guys in their last years as modern era candidates. And we're going to talk about them when we return. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we move on to the Hall of Fame finalists, uh, Ron, this ESPN the magazine story that, that, that caused such an uproar last week. Um, a, do you believe there's something to it? And B, do you believe Bill Belichick is coaching the Patriots for the foreseeable future? Now, look, I, I know what he said this week. I, I heard it. Uh, but what he said was he absolutely expects to be coaching them. He didn't say if he would or not. He said he expects to. And to me, there's a difference. Well, sure. No, you're right. Look, uh, 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 Bill picks his words uh, carefully on these kinds of occasions when he chooses to use some words. And uh, you're, you're right. I mean, <coughs> uh, expects uh, is one thing. Knowing that you serve at the pleasure of the owner uh, is a completely other thing, and you know he could say something or not do something or not uh, that leads the owner to say, you know, I think I've had enough of you. Uh, but I expect him to be here uh, because in when you boil it all down, it's still what's best for him and it's still what's best for Kraft. And the fact of it is, Kraft will decide because Belichick's on the contract and there's no out. So if he's going to go right. anywhere, Bob Kraft will decide that. And uh, uh, you know, and then you've got the dueling egos with your boy Brady uh, coming off as an entitled twit uh, who wanted. Huh? His, well, let's what? What, let's be honest what? about it. I know that's hard for you, but let's be honest about it. An entitled twit who wanted his likely successor uh, gone, and uh, and look, human nature being what it is, I understand it. You know, who wants your successor or potential successor breathing down your neck? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I go back to Montana and Young all the time. Yeah, Montana you couldn't stand, he couldn't stand Steve Young being behind him. Couldn't sure. stand him. But that's no. why Walsh brought him in, because right. he wanted to push Montana. But he couldn't stand him. Right. But, you know, Walsh wouldn't have liked it if they brought in Vince Lombardi to push him. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> that's just the name. <laughs> Nobody likes it, you know. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, to a degree, Tom tried to leverage his power with Kraft a little bit. I don't believe that he demanded Jimmy G be traded, and I don't believe that, that uh, uh, but he made it clear what he'd like to see happen and i don't believe that the owner ordered a trade but what the owner did he's very good at uh plausible deniability yeah he he created a scenario where he told the coach tom's not going anywhere and you can't franchise jimmy g other than that do whatever you want well what else is there you know lose him uh, trade him now or lose him for nothing so. Yeah, and I mentioned Montana Young. Also, you know, Favre and, and Rogers. Now, sure. they did move Favre. They moved Favre. Right. Um, but that's another situation. Anyway, I, I guess what I'm asking... Hey, Manning like in Indianapolis with, with... Yeah, that's right. Uh, with Locke. Yeah, although he had the injury. He had the injury He did, well. but still the same thing, you know. But wh- where do you see Brady and Belichick in three years? Uh, probably both gone to uh, parts unknown. Uh, if you think DB12 
will still be playing quarterback at uh, TB44. You've lost your mind. Yeah, that's Uh, right. Right. And at that point, uh, Belichick will be 69. And how many 69-year-old head coaches do you still see lurking around the NFL these days? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think that they'll probably both be gone, and uh, so will 25% of the fans. Okay. Fusman, now back to the Hall of Fame. Yes. Out of New England. Sorry, Ron. I'm going to put you aside here for a second. And we're going to go to the Hall of Fame and its finalists. Um, As I said, there are a couple guys among the 15 that are in their last years of eligibility, and that would be former Washington tackle Joe Jacoby and former cornerback in front of the show, Everson Walls, who spent most of his career with Goose's Dallas Cowboys. Now, as everyone knows, uh, Jacoby's been a two-year finalist and a top 10 finalist in 2016. But Everson Walls, uh, it's his first go as a finalist, and semi-finalist for that matter. So making his first appearance in that room in his last year of eligibility, his 20th year of eligibility. Goose, who has the better chance of getting elected of these two? And realistically, how good are either of their chances? Well, Walls may have the better shot because he's new, in his case, never been presented. You know, Jacoby's been in the room twice previously and took a step backward in the process in 2017 when Tony Baselli passed him and they cut the 10. I would hope the voters respect the fact if they truly believe Jacoby and Walls are Hall of Famers, put them in now. This is their last shot. If they get dumped into the senior pool, everyone is a long shot. Well, as you mentioned, Jacoby took a step backwards last year, and he did. He didn't make the cut from 15 to 10, where he was a top 10 finalist in, in 2016. That would seem to indicate Goose is Kansas City's losing momentum. Do you agree? Do you see it that way? Well, Gary Zimmerman and Richard Dent were both multi-year Hall of Fame candidates, finalists. They both dropped out of the top 15, only to return the following year and eventually game election. You know, every year is different. You know, I think there is a greater sense of urgency with Jacoby that didn't exist a year ago, and, and this is his last shot. Uh, I tend to think he's lost some momentum. I think uh, he'll be helped a little bit by having a new presenter just because you're going to hear a new voice and, and maybe some right. new information or, right. or at least same information presented in a different way. And that's not to knock the previous presenter, but I just think after you've uh, – there's only so many ways you can go, especially with an offensive lineman. It's not like you got 50 you know, statistics that you can go into. Right. So I think maybe he'd be helped. It may be the same story, but at least you got a different storyteller. Well, bottom line, do you think – do you believe Jacoby belongs? Yeah, I do. I think all five of the offensive linemen on the ballot are Hall of Fame worthy. Some are going to have to wait their turns. You know, what the selection panel has to understand is that Jacob, Joe Jacoby has run out of turns. It's now or never for him. Yeah, uh, you know, according to the people I've talked to and the, the research I've done myself, I really don't. Uh, I really think he's the Hall of Very Good. But I can still be persuaded otherwise uh, if you can make a compelling case. Uh, you know, it's, it's not in stone. Uh, and, and again, as I say, I think a new presenter gives you the uh, possibility of uh, a, a new way of presenting him, uh, maybe some new information, some new argument uh, that can make you go, oh, yeah, all right. You know, I, okay. I can go with that. Okay, uh, let's move on to Walls. Uh, you talked about a sense of urgency. This guy's in his last year, his first appearance in front of the Hall of Fame voters. So, Ron, he's up against your guy, and that's Ty Law. Uh, you present Ty Law. Uh, I, I really can't see two corners going in the same year. So, what do you think Walls' chances are? Well, uh, I, I mean, I think they're pretty good. And, and I would disagree a little bit with that position in general because I don't think, you know, it's not really about this guy's up against this guy. You know, it's more like golf. You're playing the course, not the not the guy next to you, really. And, it, you know, if you play the course well enough or if you played it well enough, uh, then you deserve to go in. If, if the two corners are, are in the opinion of all but ten of the voters, uh, the five best guys, then they should go in. And I think it's... Uh, 
Um, I do think that, you know, now and everything with Walls, uh, it could go either way. I, I, I think it could help him or it could backfire on him with some people saying, wait a minute, it's not a pity party here. You know, is the guy deserve right, to be right. in or not? And I, so right. I think whoever, uh, uh, you know, I, I think when that part of the discussion comes up, it's got to be walked on pretty carefully because if, if it gets overplayed, then it's like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? You know? um, and, and, and you don't want to go in that direction. Uh, you just want to present the guy's credentials, I think. Well, uh, Gooseman, either of these two guys could have gone in a long time ago. We know that. But the fact of the matter is they didn't. Because for the first 17 years of uh, Joe Jacoby's eligibility, he wasn't a finalist. And and Walls wasn't even a semifinalist un- until now. That's incredible. So, yeah, it is. It, it, it is. <laughs> I mean, so how seriously... And we were talking about this this now or never approach. How seriously do you think voters are going to take that with, with these guys possibly moving one or both to the head of the line because there are no tomorrows? Um, I mean, do they go, no, we got to get Terrell Owens, we got to get Randy Moss, we got to, or do they say, no, I mean, this is it, <laughs> this is it. They got one shot, that's it. I don't think they will take it seriously. I, I think they'll judge the candidate on the merits. Yeah, I'm with and you. The problem I've got with Everson Walls that Rondo's never tie law is very few people in that room have ever seen Everson Walls play. And right. they, they can't understand why it took him 20 years to get get into the room when, in fact, the process was flawed, not his resume. He's fifth among pure corners in interceptions in NFL history. He's the only corner to lead the interceptions uh, three times. He's a Hall of Fame caliber player that's never been in the room. And that's, that's what I push, not that this is his last shot. Have mercy on him. Well, speaking of guys who have never been finalists, there's one our Rick Gosselin wrote about this week on our website, www.talkoffamenetwork.com, and whom we've had on this show this year. Gooseman, you want to tell us about him and why you think he belongs in camp? Yeah, Willie Anderson was an elite college tackle at Auburn who became the 10th overall pick of the 96 NFL draft by the Bengals and went on to become the most dominant right tackle of his era. But no one seemed to notice. That's because all NFL eyes are on the left side. That's the quarterback's blind side. The left tackle serves as his protector. The right side traditionally has been the power side, the run side. And as the NFL evolved into a game of pitch and catch in the 1990s and 2000 decades, the NFL searched intensified for pass-blocking left tackles, not run-blocking right tackles. And that's where the accolades were directed. The Pro Bowl was meant to honor the best players in each conference at each position, except that it doesn't. Anderson played at an elite level for 12 seasons with the Bengals and a final season with the Rams. But, but again, no one seemed to notice. During those 13 years, there were 39 offensive tackles voted the AFC Pro Bowl team, three each season. Only five of those 39 tackles played the right side. Anderson voted the Pro Bowl three times and Lincoln Kennedy twice from that side. The other 34 spots went to 10 different left tackles, including Hall of Famers Walter Jones, Jonathan Ogden, and Willie Rolfe. The four offensive tackles named to the 1990s NFL All-Decade team all played left tackle. The four tackles on the 2000 All-Decade team also were all left tackles. The logical assumption was that the best pass blocker up front lines up at left tackle, and that's where Willie Anderson has been shortchanged. During his career, he had the responsibility to block three Hall of Fame pass rushers who lined up on the offense's right side, Reggie White, Michael Strahan, and Kevin Green. He was called on to block four other members in the NFL's 100 sack club, Julius Peppers, Robert Mathis, Neil Smith, and Trace Armstrong. He had another problem with this candidacy, too. The committee loves winners. He played in one winning season in 12 at Cincinnati. Wrong side, wrong team. A bad combination for tackles who covered a bust at Canton. 
Anderson fashioned a career worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. He's been eligible for the Hall for five years now, but has never even been a semifinalist. As the best right tackle of his era, he deserves a Hall of Fame discussion. Election to Kenneth Canton shouldn't be as simple as left and right. Well, Goose, do you see any scenario where he can overcome uh, all these uh, issues that you point out so uh, convincingly? Sure, if we wave a wand and cast enlightenment over the committee. <laughs> we're going to have to wave a wand, guys. We've got to run, otherwise our producer is going to get a case of the willies. Hey, up next is Hall of Fame GM Bill Polian. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest is a regular this time of year. First of all, because he's a Hall of Fame general manager. A second, because he's an outstanding judge of talent, no matter the era. And third, and really most of all, because he's a good friend of ours. And I'm talking, of course, of Hall of Famer Bill Pulliam, who you can see on ESPN. And Bill, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, Bill, I, I first question here. Um, you've seen the list of Hall of Fame candidates for the Halls, class of 2018. Question for you. If you were a voter, which of the 15 guys up for election do you consider sure things or are close to a sure thing as you would walk into that room? Well, I don't know what the voters do. So this is a dangerous game. I learned that with the Commissioner Tagliabue's candidacy in my mind he was the surest sure thing in the history of sports but it didn't happen that way um but i would guess um probably ray lewis um simply because of the high profile he's had throughout his career right. and uh and he continues to have a pro high profile now um it, 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 you know, I'm rooting for Edger and James. I've got a vested interest there, obviously. Uh, and I think he's very deserving. Uh, he's certainly uh, not a sure thing. I, I probably Ray would be the, would be the one that I would I would say would probably be, in my view, the surest thing. And Bill, I remember on draft day when you were looking at Edger and James and Ricky Williams there, and you surprised a lot of people by taking James over Williams. What makes uh, Edge special? Well, um, we took Edgerin because we felt that um, he had the right combination of skills that fit our offense. Remember that we had traded Marshall Falk that morning and then turned around and did not take Ricky Williams. And our, our great personnel director, Dominelli flipped his keys to Tom Telesco, who was then um, uh, an assistant personnel director, now the general manager in San Diego, and said, hey, Tommy, you better go tar- start my car after the draft. The switchboard was blowing up. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> we thought the fans were going to storm the Bastille because uh, <laughs> they hadn't heard of Edger and James. But he had great acceleration in the hole. He had great vision. He had great val- uh, balance. Uh, he was a terrific blocker, and he fit perfectly in a passing game. I don't think there's been a better pass catching back in the history of the game than Marshall Falk, but Edge was pretty darn close. And so, uh, it, to us, in, in virtually every category, 
he was better than Ricky Williams. And that's the decision we made, and thank God it worked out okay. Yes, it did. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, Ray Lewis, uh, Bill, and, and of course he and Brian Urlacher are both up first time, first team all decade choices, both up for the first time. Uh, if you were in that room, would you be inclined to put one of them in, both in, or none as first ballot Hall of Famers? And and uh, and just to sort of preface that, uh, when I think of first ballot Hall of Famers, I think of Dick Buckus and Johnny Unitas and Jim Brown. So I'm sort of dating myself. Um, I don't know how big a deal you think that is, but do you see both those guys as first ballot Hall of Famers or no? Yeah, I I, I, I don't subscribe to that theory. I think you look at uh, the, the it's fifteen that'll be, that'll be ultimately voted upon. Correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you look at the fifteen and say which of these fifteen are deserving of being in here, no matter what time they come up. Um, I'm not sure that I would put Erlacher in the same class as Ray Lewis, uh, although they both pass my first test, which is do you have to game plan for them? Um, both guys pass that test with flying colors. Um, but, I, I, you know, I guess I probably would, if, if you gave me a choice between the two, I, although both deserving, clearly, I probably would take Ray. Uh, it would depend on what the rest of the ballot looked like. I firmly believe that even though he had a short career, Tony Baselli, relatively speaking, Tony Baselli was the best offensive lineman in the AFC during the time that he played. So that would mean a lot. That means a lot to me. And we got past the short career issue last year with the Denver running back. So uh, you know, I, Tony to me would be a guy that's that's very deserving. But they all are. I, 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 Whoever's in that 15 are deserving. That's what makes it such a, a hard choice for, for you fellas. We're speaking with Hall of Fame General Manager Bill Pauline on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, Bill, since you mentioned it, I'll, I'll ask you the question about you said we got past the short career thing last year with Terrell Davis. Do you think we opened a Pandora's box with that, um, the fact that he had – three, maybe four, but three sensational years, four really good ones, um, but that we've opened something now that's going to make uh, it very difficult not to look at virtually uh, everybody? Yes, I, I really do. If you want to be consistent, if I'm, if I'm correct, and, I, and, you, and you people know far better than I, but if I'm correct, the only short career Hall of Famer prior to that last year was uh, the great Gale Sayers, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay, so that was uh, however many years ago, two decades, maybe three decades. I'm old enough. It was a long time because I'm old enough <laughs> to have seen him play <laughs> and, 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 and marvel at his ability. And by the way, I would have voted for him on the first ballot. But, uh, <laughs> Me too. It was yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, we've gone a long time with uh, the, the rubric of the short career. Uh, but I think once once you made that move, it's uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Right. I would agree. The um, bill in 2011, there were three pass rushes in the final 15: Richard Dent, Chris Dolman, and Charles Haley. But they split split the vote, and all three were eliminated in the reduction to 10. This year, there are five offensive linemen on the ballot. Can you see a quick exit for several of them for the very same reason? Well, again, that's a, that's a dynamic that you fellows know better than I. 
but I would think so. I, I, I would think, um, you know, folks would, would tend, it's human nature to tend to rank them. And, uh, and then once you make your choice as to who ranks highest, then uh, you're going to tend to almost, uh, in, in, in human nature, denigrate uh, or lower some of the others and turn to another position. So I, that would be my surmise. You've been in a room, but I, I would I would guess that that might happen. Well, I'm presenting uh, one of your favorites, uh, Bill Ty Law. Um, I actually talked to Peyton about him today. Uh, it was pretty interesting to listen to him. But uh, you had to play against him for a long time. Uh, a, would he get your vote? And B, uh, if so, uh, what about his game did you think made him particularly special? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, I go all the way back to uh, – um, studied him in the draft when our first year with the Carolina Panthers, and I think the Pats took him ahead of us. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in any event, I know a great deal about him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, on that Patriot team, which was legendary in my view, uh, I think that was the best Patriot team of all during that that three Super Bowl run. Um, there were three guys that stood out to me: Seymour, um, uh, Teddy Bruschi, mm-hmm. and Ty Law. And uh, uh, th- those were the three who clearly, clearly on defense were the difference makers. And and Ty Law could cover anybody. Um, he could execute any defense. Uh, he was physical. He was tough. He was highly competitive. Um, he was simply a great player. And uh, when you matched up Marvin Harrison against Ty Law, you got to match up for the ages. We won some and they won some, but uh, you, you're talking about a guy that can hold his own with Marvin Harrison. You're talking about the best uh, among the best in the history of the game. So Ty Law, to me, is is one of the three linchpins of what maybe one of the you know the great defenses of all time when it's all said and done. Hey, Bill, speaking of defense, uh, we got two safeties up, as we did last year. John Lynch, Brian Dawkins. Where would you go? You have one. Oh, man, that's tough. Them. That's tough. Um, you know, Lynch is – I know too much. This is a, this is a dangerous place to be. Um, I know what that safety <laughs> position means to the Dungy defense. Uh, there's there's two, three players. I mentioned the three players on the Patriots. There's three players in the Dungey defense that are the linchpins of the whole defense. Uh, first is the three technique. That was Warren Sapp. Second is the Will linebacker. That was Brooks. Third is the safety. That's John Lynch. I, I don't think I need to say any more. Uh, those are the three that made it one of the great defenses in the history of football for the time they played together. Um, they were, I think, the last defense in the history of, uh, in modern history, to win a Super Bowl. They had virtually no offense. Uh, you know, it was a ball control, uh, no quarterback to speak of, no, no high level quarterback to speak of. Uh, not denigrating the guys that played for them, but uh, they won with suffocating defense. And, and he was, no pun intended, one of the linchpins of that defense. So I tend to go with him. Not that Brian wasn't a good player. He, he really was. But if you had to rank him, again, 
I, I think I'd probably put John first, only because I know what value that guy is to the defense. If you do not have that player, you do not have a quality defense. Bill, all the noise, uh, as usual, is around Owens and Moss in this class. Where does Isaac Bruce fit with those two guys? Well, certainly right there with him. Uh, you know, I think you, I think what you, first of all, you start with, here, here's what I use as criteria. You start with, do you have to game plan for him? The answer to all three is yes. All right, then you go from there. Uh, what kind of production did they have? In all three cases, it's superior production, and it ranks right up there with the best of all time. Uh, and so that qualifies all three. And, and then you look and say, okay, let's go back down on the field now and see what this guy contributed to the teams um, with whom he played. And, um, and, you know, when you talk about Isaac Bruce, you're talking about a guy – that could do everything. In in the case of uh, of Moss, you're talking about a guy who who did less things, but the things that he did, he did probably as good or better than anybody that played. And then you're talking about the other guy. There are issues in the locker room and within the context of the team that you can't hide from. So I think you have to be honest about that. And, uh, and then make your decision accordingly. I guess to follow up would on that, co- Bill. Would- oh, I, sorry, Clark, but I was just, it just popped in my head. Um, how much weight do you think and do you, uh, really should come down on that side of Owens' uh, case? Because I always look at him and, and think, that was a hell of a lot of production. I don't care if they liked him or they didn't like him. That was an awful lot of production. It's not a question of like. It's a question of what did he contribute to the team. Was he a positive influence? Was he a negative influence? That's for everybody. That's a decision everyone has to make for themselves. But I think it's an appropriate question to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Bill, we got to run. But as always, many, many thanks. And we'll see you in Minneapolis, right? Yes. Look forward to Terrific. it. Terrific. Thanks, Terrific. Thanks, thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Hall of Fame General Manager Bill Polian. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, guys, I uh, see Jeff Triplett getting ready to do what? That's the two-minute warning. Ah, yeah, another whistle. But this one means we're going to the two-minute drill. So, Gooseman, start drilling. Jacksonville quarterback Blake Bortles ran for more yards than he passed in Jaguars' wildcard victory. It's Colin Kaepernick's playoff record of 264 rushing yards by a quarterback in the Jeopardy. No siree. Only thing in Jeopardy, Goose, is Tommy Thompson's 1948 playoff rating of (laughs) 0.00. I think not, Gooseman. Bortles won't play enough games to catch up to Colin Kaepernick. Referee Tony Corrente averaged a league runner up 14 penalties per game this season and was rewarded with a playoff slam. Does the NFL like penalties or do they just like Corrente? No, they like penalties. Chances are more Ed Hockley tank tops. Maybe Tony Corrente made them an offer they couldn't repeat. <laughs> Cam Newton was knocked silly late in the California Carolina's playoff loss for return of the game. What happened to the concussion tent? Uh, left with Mike Shula and Ken Dorsey. The larger question is, how can you get poked in the eye with a visor on? 
That's a sign of a concussion right there. <laughs> Rookie running back Cream Hunt disappeared in the second half. Kansas City's playoff lost touching the ball only five times during the collapse for the Chiefs. Has Andy Reid filed a missing person report yet for the NFL rushing champion? Yes, he has. And he filed it for 11 others, too, Gooseman. The Chiefs defense. I actually suggest that the Chiefs file a missing person's report for Andy Reid if there's any more playoff games. Just stay home. The man who also lost sight of Hunt in the playoff loss, Chiefs offensive coordinator Mike Nagy, is the new head coach of the Bears. Should Jordan Howard, the NFL's sixth leading rusher, worry about his possible disappearance in the Chicago game? Only if he's in the playoffs. So, no. Oh, he should worry about his fantasy football team. Be sure he doesn't put himself on it. Drew Brees delivered his first 300-yard pass game since mid-November in their own wildcard victory over Carolina. Was he saving his arm for the playoffs? Nope, just giving his backs the week off. He was a veteran willing to do what he has to do when he has to do it. Gun or pass. Derrick Henry, Henry Winkler, or O. Henry? Henry VIII had almost as many wives as Antonio Cromartie has kids. Oilers Derrick, because if that was coming to Foxborough, it would be coming with Earl Campbell. What happened to the Rams? Outcoached, outmanned, or outplayed? All of the above. Out experienced and out of the playoffs. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have Fox Rules analyst Mike Pereira and a Hall of Fame voter Sam Caveras from Jacksonville, just around the corner. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network, where we'll be hearing later from former NFL Director of Officiating Mike Pereira, now, of course, with Fox TV, as well as Hall of Fame voter Sam Caveras from Jacksonville. But first, yeah, first, as a Hall of Fame-centric show, we're going to celebrate the guys who this week were named to the College Football Hall of Fame. And guys, there are some familiar names there. Uh, Michigan State, uh, Michigan, not Michigan State, Michigan star Charles Woodson. Goose, that hurt. I think he's eligible for the Hall in 2021, I think. And safety Ed Reed, who's eligible for the Hall Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2019, as well as former Georgia Tech star and Detroit Lions star Calvin Johnson. There were 13 former coaches and players. And Goose, you know, you look at that, that group, you could feel a pretty good team with these guys. Except that seven of the ten players in Shrine played offense. The College Hall has the same problem as the Pro Football Hall. It's all about the O, baby. All about the O. Oh, wow. Ronnie, any surprises in there for you? Uh, well, there was one. I had to look up Trevor Cobb, a running back out of Rice, who was undrafted by the NFL and played a year or two with the Bears. But he rushed for 1,692 yards and won the Doak Walker wow. Award in 1991. Who other than Goose knew that? <laughs> not me, not you. Uh, hey, Gooseman, also on that list, there was Kerry Collins, and, and I thought that was great. But uh, you remember him as a Penn State star? Because he was good. I mean, he was really good. And then, of course, he led the Giants to the Super Bowl in 2000. Yeah, I'm glad he got in the College Hall of Fame because that's where it ends. <laughs> wow. Hey, who do you want coaching this team, Goose? You want Mac Brown or Frank Beamer coaching this team? <laughs> Frank Beamer. I love special Frank. teams guys. I want, the, I want the other guy from uh, a guy I'd never heard of from a school I'd never heard of. My kind of coach. Who's that? Forget his name. <laughs> <laughs> that's your kind of coach. Yeah, that's right? my kind of coach. Who's that? 
Hey, Goose, you know what struck me other than the uh, offense-defense disparity? It was the number of guys elected. I mean, we had 13 of them. I mean, each year there's a max of only eight with Ganton. Yeah, but there are only 32 teams in the NFL. There are 130 college teams playing Division I football, another 150 or so playing lower levels. So I thought 13 might be a little light, considering all the yeah. All-Americans eligible from those schools. Well, anyway, congratulations to all 13. And they're going to be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame at a reception in New York on December 4th. Up next, it's Hall of Fame voter Sam Cuveras from Jacksonville with his take on the Jags and Hall of Fame candidate Tony Baselli. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it's been a long time since we've had the chance to Not only in, they're in this weekend's divisional round game in Pittsburgh. And here to preview that and a lot more is our good friend and Hall of Fame voter Sam Kavaris of WJXT-TV in Jacksonville. Hey, Sam, thanks for joining us. Good good to be with you guys, as always. Basic question here, Sam. How surprised are you that the Jags are here? Well, you know, it's so funny, and you guys obviously have covered teams on a, on a daily basis. During training camp, we all probably would have said this was a six, seven-win team, and Vegas agreed because it over-under wins was six and a half. And then after the preseason – the exhibition games, we all said this team will win four games because they were so horrid during the preseason that you didn't know what they were going to do on on offense. Remember, this is a team that benched their quarterback in the third preseason game and opened the competition, and their offensive line was as bad as as anything I've I've seen on the professional level. And then in week one, they go and thrash Houston, and we're like, who is that? And it wasn't until they beat Pittsburgh in week three that you could see the confluence of the three free agents that they got on defense. Uh, obviously, Clays came on A.J. Bouye, but the acquisition of Barry Church has been very underrated. Really, I don't know if you guys know him, but and I'm rich, you probably know him. He's a, he's a pro's pro, and he, he is one of those guys that keeps it all in front of him, on the straight and narrow, makes guys do their job, you know, really just a, a guy that you want on your team to play that role. And then the addition of Leonard Fournette, add that with the confluence of the young players who had been so immature, like Dante Fowler and Miles Jack and even Telvin Smith getting better. You had this interlocking thing of guys coming in from the side and guys growing from, from the ground up, all kind of coming together at the same time. And, you know, you don't, you don't always hit on a fifth-round pick like Telvin Smith, who has certainly played at an all-pro level. And, you know, you don't, you don't have that kind of thing happen to you that allows you to uh, have a Yannick Ngakwe, who's a, who's a, a fourth-round selection who plays with a giant chip on his shoulder because he should have been, thought he should have been drafted higher and really has production. There's any team in the league that would have either one of those guys as a starter. So when you hit on those, and you hit on your first-round picks, and you hit on your free agents. That all comes together like it did this year. I, I mean, I'd have lost plenty of money betting you over at six and a half, I can tell you that. <laughs> hey, Sam, only one team in the last 32 years has managed to beat the Steelers twice in the same season in Pittsburgh. 
Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, it was the 2007 Jaguars. <laughs> and they right. do it again. The, uh, da- the David Garrard led uh, Jaguars, and they did that two out of three weeks. They played them uh, in the last game, I think, of the regular season, and then played them two weeks later up there. Uh, and Garrard was able to um, uh, kind of pull off a, a running kind of quarterback thing that Bortles did this past week. Uh, can they do it again? Absolutely. Because their defense, nobody knows better than you guys, their defense is legit and defense travels in this league. And as poorly as they played in the first half offensively last week, the defense kept them in the game to the point where 3-3 at a halftime felt like a win. And they came out in the second half with that one drive together. The only reason they gave up three points to Buffalo to begin with was because of two really stupid 30 yards of penalties that they gave up. And all of a sudden, you know, a 10-3 lead looked like it was 30-3 to the way Buffalo was playing offensively. So um, Roethlisberger is going to bring a whole different challenge to the Jaguars, but it's the same thing that they excel at, and that is both of those cornerbacks are Pro Bowl caliber. You really, in talking to 19-year NFL veteran Mark Brunel, and we talk to him a lot here. He's been, he's been working with us here uh, for about six weeks. He says, you know, as a quarterback, literally you don't want to throw to those guys because if the ball is in the air for over a second, they're going to close on it and either break it up or intercept it. doesn't matter where they are. They're going to they're gonna find that guy. And I think Roethlisberger is going to try to test them and test that the back end of, the, of their defense. And that's where the Jaguars still excel. And, you know, he threw five interceptions the last time. Some of it had to do with the pressure that he was getting up front. Other had to do with just phenomenal athletic plays by Jalen Ramsey and Barry Church. And, um, you know, it, can the Jaguars win? Absolutely. Um, I would say it's unlikely. But, you know, people are talking about playing the AFC Championship game here. And I said, you know, that means the Titans have to win, too. And they all go, oh, yeah, but it's a weird year. And I go, yeah, okay, great. It's a weird <laughs> year. Weird. I'm getting ready That'd for be two weird. weeks. <laughs> That'd be really weird. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be past weird. That would be federal investigation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. so, so, Sam, what happens if, uh, uh, rather than the scenario you just discussed, uh, they get in a situation where instead of two field goals, uh, Pittsburgh scores two touchdowns, and now they're down uh, – 14 points. How much does that change the Jaguars' possibilities? Completely. Because this team has shown all year long the best line ever in the league is you are what your record says you are. So you are what you earn in this in this situation. And this team has shown all year long that they play best from in front. Whether it's a 3 nothing lead or a 20 nothing lead, they have a better offensive plan from when they're in front than when they're behind. Bortles for all the criticism he's gotten, has a higher completion percentage than Carson Wentz, has a uh, higher quarterback rating than Cam Newton, has more passing yards than Derek Carr, has fewer interceptions than just about everybody but Tom Brady. I mean, you know, this guy's had a pretty good year that he's still the whipping post for what everybody wants to talk about, what's the matter with the Jaguars' offense. Some of it has to do with the fact that next year, they're on the hook for $19 million if they don't cut him by March 1st. So, obviously, he can make himself a lot of money this week. But he is not shown to be the quarterback that can bring you back from behind. Can get a lot of garbage time stats and has in previous years. 
But this year, his statistics are authentic. And the, the maturization that we've seen from Blake is the uh, willingness to throw it. I know this sounds stupid. To throw it to the guy who's open. It's <laughs> a radical I notion, mean, Sam. Radical notion, right? But, you know, when guys go through their progressions and, you know, you see the first guy he's covered, the second guy is open, and he would then progress to the third guy to see, well, maybe he's open too. Sam, I want to ask you a quick question. We've got about 30 seconds left. Speaking of the offensive line, you're presenting Tony Baselli in the Hall of Fame this year. Is this the year he gets in? You know, I, I talked to some of our compatriots who, who have been uh, here in the last three or four weeks, and the sentiment is that Tony certainly had a career that is deserving of recognition in Canton. And I think it'll come down to whether the thought on the committee is that there's a lot of sentiment and sentimental kind of feeling toward Joe Jacoby since it's the final year of his eligibility. Uh, If that doesn't come into play, you guys know the backroom story of the new presenter that'll happen for the Washington Redskins. I don't know if that'll have anything to do with it. But my my focus will be that Vaselli's career hasn't changed. And But what changed was the dynamic of the committee in terms of our selection process. And last year, we put two guys in who certainly were deserving, and Terrell Davis and Kenny Easley. And uh, Easley played 89 games, and Terrell Davis played, I think, 78 games total. Vaselli played 97 games. So the only qualifier, clearly, that the committee now puts on getting into the Hall of Fame is greatness. And Vaselli checks the box in every category when you ask about that, having played 97 games in the league. So uh, I would certainly hope that the committee looks at it that way. And um, uh, I do think he's one of those guys. That our, our friend John Clayton did that research that if you get into the room, and I know Rich talks about this a lot, getting into the room is important. You have an 88% chance of event- eventually getting into Canton. And I, I think that Vaselli um, eventually will make it. I certainly hope it's this year. Sam Kavaris, thanks so much for the time. And we'll see you, not in Pittsburgh, but we're going to see you in Minnesota. <laughs> hey, maybe you guys are coming to Jacksonville in two weeks. That'd be good. That'd be good. That'd be great. We're on board. Love to see you. If not, I'll, I'll see you in Minneapolis. All right, take you care. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Sam Kavaris at WJXT-TV in Jacksonville. Up next, we're going to look at this weekend's game and see if Sam's right. It's the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, you guys watched the national championship game the other night, Goose? Yes, sir. Quite entertaining, especially when Alabama switched quarterbacks started to throw. Yeah. But when Bama missed that field goal, I thought it was in the cards for Georgia. Wow. That, that was a gutsy decision to go to the uh, freshman at halftime, right? He, he had to throw to get back in the game, and he wasn't going to do it with hurt. I think it was. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. gutsy. I think it was a smart coaching decision. Yeah, right, right. You got well, you know, to, to have some stones to make that. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, you win all those national championships. I suppose a little bit easier than if you're some first year coach from, you know. Uh, but still, I said, wow, that's. Yeah, that's and you're sitting down. The guy that lost what two games in his career. I mean, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, but you know what, uh, Ron? I had to laugh because you know the week before when George beat Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl, I heard these guys on ESPN calling it. And I wrote it down. Arguably the greatest game in college football history, unquote. Oh. And I remember telling someone after then, Those you guys know what? Ten? Yeah. 
Are they 10 years old, those people? I said, yeah, until next week. Then that will be the greatest. And guess what? It was until next season. Really? Let me, let me tell you. The greatest college football game was Nebraska-Oklahoma Thanksgiving right. Day, 1971 right. in Norman, Johnny Oklahoma. Rogers. A game so big that Bob Devaney, the, the, the Nebraska coach, Flew food in from Lincoln to Norman because he was afraid the cooks at the hotel were going to poison his players. That's a big game. Was that Jerry Taggy? Was was Taggy yeah. the quarterback? Yeah. Uh, weren't you around the '66 when Michigan State played Notre Dame? Yeah. Oh, that was a great century? game. The game of the century. <laughs> yeah, that was played. a great game. Yeah, except in the end, they didn't play like great players. Hey, wait a minute, Notre Dame. Don't blame that in the spark. <laughs> we're talking about great games. Wrong. We're talking about great games. Harvard yeah. Yale, 1968. Yeah, that was a great game. Frank yeah, it was a great. Next season, any 500 people? One, no, one. doesn't matter. Oh, no, place is sold out. out. What place, are you talking about? Place is sold out. You couldn't get me? another Four, body right? in there. Is that 4,000? Brian, Brown, Dowling, Calvin Hill. No, what is it, that Harvard Stadium, what, 45,000, 50,000? Exactly. That was a huge Frank, game. Frank Champion at Harvard. School crowds here. Yeah, well, Frank Champion. Pete Varney. Pete Varney, Frank Champion. Frank Champion quit the team the next year. Yeah, he couldn't. Only at the Ivy League. He just couldn't live up to that experience. So That's cool. right. And you know what? He was, the, he, he was the javelin thrower for the Harvard track team. I know because I was running for Dartmouth. He came up and went, oh, my God, there's a God. Yeah, it was great. Anyway, You're that game last week. asleep at Ivy League football, okay? Oh, come <laughs> on. Lose our audience. By Please. Calvin Hill. Calvin Hill. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that game this week, that they was They actually to have to go it. to class, then, not li- unlike in Texas. Right. They don't even have to That's be on the right. campus. <laughs> that game was fun to watch. Hey, Ron, can you can you pronounce that quarterback's name? For, sure. Uh, for that's, Alabama. That's, that's easy. Give it a go. Tua. We're on a first-name basis, you and I. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, something like that. Okay, from the NCAA to the NFL, or maybe Harvard, Yale, I don't know. And I always thought, Goose, uh, this is the best weekend of the season. I'm talking about this weekend. You get four divisional round games. And, and generally, they're pretty competitive. Um, so I guess I'm going to ask you, where are you going first? Well, where is your best game this weekend, or where are you looking for an upset? Wow, I don't think it will be one in New England. Um, I think Pittsburgh-Jacksonville could be interesting. Because of that defense, Whoa. you know, Lake defense, defense travels. Um, you know, and you were saying Trent Dilfer back in 2000. You were saying Brad Johnson back in 2002. Defense travels. You know, this team, I think Jacksonville scored five defensive touchdowns. And if you don't have seven. a lot of offense, scored seven. Yeah, okay, if you don't have a lot of offense, those defensive touchdowns come in very, very handy. They've already beaten Pittsburgh once up there, and they've, they've done it one previous time. So I think if there's an upset, it could be Jacksonville-Pittsburgh. Well, Guzman, uh, I don't totally disagree with your point, and you know I love defense, and I agree defense travels. Unfortunately, the Jaguars' offense doesn't travel. It doesn't move an inch. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. And if uh, that big runner can get going, then maybe they got a chance, but I don't see that happening. That, that sorry offense put 29 in Pittsburgh last time they were yeah, up there. I, yeah, I know. So what Kansas hey, City pounded the Patriots, too. Where are they? Home. J- Jackson, Jacksonville could use Brian Dowling at quarterback, don't you think? Oh, jeez. <laughs> or Frank Champy. I don't know. That thing but you last know, you week know, was impossible to watch. Oh, it was brutal. Um, but, you, you know, and speaking of that, you know what jumps out at you about these games? There's a the huge difference in experience among the quarterbacks. I mean, there's Brady versus Mariota, Roethlisberger versus Bortles, Breeze versus Keenum, and Ryan versus Foles. I mean, all four of those veterans, they've all been to Super Bowls, and three of them won eight. I mean, they won eight Super Bowls, including five by uh, Tom Terrific. But, uh, Goose, how much of a factor is, is that quarterback experience, you think, in these games this weekend? I, I want to talk more Ivy League football. That's All right, really then Brian Dowling. Okay, let's, let's hear go it. for it. <laughs> let's go. Hey. Pete Varney, Jim Chasey, Dartmouth. I, I know Jim Varney. Uh, the NFL game is all about the quarterback <laughs> position. If you have a franchise quarterback, you have a chance. If you don't, you're cooked. 
The four favorites this weekend, all have franchise quarterbacks. The four underdogs universally do not. But three of the four underdogs have defenses that rank in the top four. If one of those franchise quarterbacks can be rattled, a defense could advance, i.e. Jacksonville. Oh, okay, Ron, let's go to your game in New England. Um, doesn't look like that's going to be an upset. Um, but no. if it is, tell me how or why the Patriots have, uh, the Patriots, the Titans, have a ghost of a chance to bowl what, what could be the mother of all upsets. The only ghost of a chance they have is if the ghost of Steve McNair comes back. <laughs> because on you know, January 10th, 2004, he, he was there with a wind chill factor of minus 7. Patriots ended up winning 17-14 to 14, right. only because of the right. drugs that they had to pump into McNair's broken body worn out at halftime, and they couldn't shoot him up again, and he faded in the fourth quarter. But unless that happens, unless Steve McNair comes out of the mist and takes over at quarterback, the Tennessee Titans are going to the golf course on Monday. <laughs> I uh, agree with you. Hey, Goose, I know where you uh, stand in this Pittsburgh-Jacksonville game, but let's let's talk quickly about Jacksonville because you think they've got a shot here. Um, how much credit do you give uh, Tom Coughlin for what's going on there? I mean, they sure look somewhat like those giants of, of your, you know, with defense and running the ball. Yeah, I think the emphasis on the running game and defense reflect the personal philosophy of Coughlin, both when he was at Jacksonville and the Giants. I think that's why the Jaguars drafted Leonard Fournette with the top five pick and signed mm-hmm. three defensive starters in free agency last offseason. Now, this right. team is going to control the ball on offense, take it out of Blake Bortles' hands, and be physical on both sides of the ball. That's a Tom Coughlin team. Well, Goose, let me ask you what, what uh, Ron asked uh, Sam, and that's what happens if they fall behind 14 nothing, and now you've got to rely on Blake Bortles. Can they overcome him? What happens? What happens if they lose? That's quite simple. <laughs> I guess the answer is no. Well, that's the answer. No, no. no right. You get down, you're cooked. You're cooked. Yeah. Okay. On to the NFC. Ron, Atlanta, Philly. First time in the history of the NFL. A number one seed has been the underdog in this first playoff game. So why? I mean, it's not as if they're playing the 85 Bears here. Uh, no, but they are defending, playing the defending NFC champions, and they're doing it with a journeyman backup uh, on a team that was quarterback-driven. I mean, that's, that's what the, yeah. was making the Eagles run, Carson Wentz. Uh, when right. he went down, the Eagles, uh, you know, they, they they suddenly went from from uh, whence Carson went to where Carson is, which is on the sidelines. You know, I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I, you know, look, they could they could win it because the Falcons could implode themselves. You know, uh, but I think that uh, uh, I don't know why. I just have had this feeling for a while. Uh, Super Bowl rematch. Yeah, right, right. I think it's possible. Would, which would really be something. Goose, really who do you like something. in this game? What? You Nick, you got Nick Foles? You guys rip Blake Bortles? You tell me Nick Foles is being a Super Bowl? No, no, no. No, Super Bowl, no Super Bowl rematch. Atlanta and, the, and oh, New no, England. Okay, I can buy that. Okay. Yeah. No, I checked the weather forecast. It's supposed to rain on game day. The Falcons are, Falcons are a dome team that thrives offensively in ideal conditions. That's one of the reasons they played so well in the upset of the Rams in Southern California last weekend. There will not be ideal conditions in Philadelphia on Sunday. And if this day is about defense, the Eagles can advance. Okay, Gooseman, quickly. They're going to be ideal conditions in Minnesota. Who do you like there? Drew Brees versus the league's number one ranked defense. Yeah, I, I like the Vikings. They shellack the Saints at home in the opener, and I think the defense will again give them fits. You know, the, Mike Zimmer's constructed a special defense. This unit ranks in the top two in all four of the major statistical categories, run pass total and scoring. These defenses come wrong once in a decade. Case Keenum is not making mistakes to put the defense in bad situations. It's not like the Philadelphia situation where Foles came on at the end. Keenan doesn't make mistakes, Vikings advance. Ah, now there's the cue for our playoff quarterback. That'd be Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Goslin. Goose, 
You're on. Take it away. I'd rather hear from Brent Dalton, frankly. <laughs> Frank Champion. How about Jim Chasey? Come on. Great. The miracle like seeds are still alive in the NFL playoffs. Two firsts, two seconds, a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth. The top seed has won the last four Super Bowls, which bodes well for the New England Patriots and Philadelphia Eagles, except that the Eagles, as we've talked about, are without Carson Wentz. And they're a home underdog this week into the number six seed, the Falcons. In the salary cap era, six seeds have won only two Super Bowls. The Packers in 2010, Steelers in 2005. The Tennessee Titans will be tempted to come only the second fifth seed since 1994 to claim the Lombardi Trophy, joining the 2007 New York Giants. By the way, I believe that team beat the Patriots. They did. Uh, the New Orleans Saints are attempting to become the fifth fourth seed in the salary cap area to win the Super Bowl. The 2012 Baltimore Ravens were the most recent. The Jaguars are tempted to become only the second, third seat ever to win a Lombardi Trophy in the salary cap era. And if you guess 2006 Indianapolis Colts with Peyton Manning, you are correct, sirs. But the Vikings and Pittsburgh Steelers will be attempting to become the first, second seed to win a Super Bowl since the 2008 Steelers. Second seeds have won six Super Bowls in the salary cap era. Top seeds, 13 of them. The Patriots have won five Super Bowls as a top seed. And uh, excuse me, three Super Bowls as top seed and twice as the second seed. The Steelers have won their two Super Bowls. The Sarah Cap era is both first and second seed. And the Saints won their only Super Bowl as a top seed. The Eagles, Falcons, Jaguars, Titans, and Vikings have never won a Super Bowl at any seed. <laughs> well, uh, uh, risking not becoming a bad seed, uh, I would just ask. <laughs> I would just ask you this, Gooseman. In all honesty, all defenses talk and all this other stuff aside, do you see a scenario, a reasonable scenario, where other than a number one or number two seed wins the Super Bowl next month? Yeah, I think the not in the AFC, but I think the NFC is wide open. You know, the two teams have backup quarterbacks playing. I, I could see the Saints with Drew Brees at running him. That team. If the Saints get by Minnesota, I think the Saints are playing the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Right. Hey, Gooseman, quick question for you. Eagles are number one seed. Does that mean you like them this weekend? I think they're a six-point underdog last time I looked. I'm a big favorites guy. Big favorites uh, guy. Okay. Big, big, anyway, big, big. Hey, that was a nice goose. I like that. But you know what? Tell what I don't like. Especially last week. Officiating. Ouch. P.U. And we're going to hear more about it when we sit down with Fox analyst Mike Pereira. He's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. A few people have been on this show as much as our next guest. For good reason. We love talking with Mike Pereira. Mike was the head of officiating the NFL for nine years, and now, of course, he's the voice of reason as an officiating analyst for Fox Sports. With Rudy Martsky, yeah, who's the former TV critic for USA Today. This week he called Mike's hiring, quote, the best in generations, unquote. 
Mike, what did you send him for Christmas to get that? <laughs> Gee, many Christmas. Wow. I hadn't heard that, but oh yeah, you know, oh yeah. Maybe maybe, he, maybe he felt bad that he didn't get my Christmas card. And he's trying to sit <laughs> back on the list. I don't know, but uh, yeah, well, it's there. Know, I, I got to make sure I get his address to send him a little note, man. <laughs> well, anyway, thanks for joining us again. And and first things first, uh, tough first week for officials, especially with the. Jeff Triplett crew in Kansas City, and and I don't like to hardball you like this right out of the box, but uh, I guess I am. Um, is the system broken? I mean, I can't remember this much disenchantment with officials, and I, and I really can't remember you second guessing some of these guys that you used to work with as, as much of you ha- as much as you have the past year. Well, that's a two part question in the statement, I guess. Uh, is the system broken? Um, I think it is. Um, may- maybe not necessarily for the reason that, you know, most people might expect. Um, have I been more critical? Um, I think I have. And I think the reason is, is because I think the longer I am away from the office, and it's been eight years now, that you know, the more I've transitioned to becoming a fan, not just an analyst, but a fan. And the more I become a fan, the more frustrated I get. And when we get to playoffs, um, like we're in now, and they started the way they did, it was very frustrating for me because some of the mistakes that were made were, were just, there's there's no excuse for them. I mean, they were not all just straight judgment mistakes. They were announcement mistakes. There was the loss of a spot by a great official that, you know, threw a flag and then failed to continue to officiate. And when they picked up the flag, then they didn't know where to put the ball. Um, those, those types of things are, you know, just really, I mean, anybody, any, and the officials all know, I mean, that's just the type of stuff that shouldn't happen in the preseason, much less the, the postseason. So I think part of my lashing out and I mean and I probably should went a little stronger than I should have but has the it's because of the fact I've become a fan is the system broken um, I think it is because the system was designed for somebody else to be sitting in that chair in New York um, replay has created um, really the bulk of the major controversies this year and you know the owners and the competition committee you know, they resolved to let New York make the decision totally this year, um, you know, and that the New York had the final say. But when they did that in April and when they did that at March at the competition committee meetings, it was all designed with the notion that Dean Blandino was going to be the one that was sitting in that chair. Um, he's the guru of replay. Um, no one understands replay better than he does. Um, there's a reason why he was at the national championship game, you know, when Alabama and Georgia played, because he is a college replay trainer also and works with the Big Ten. So it was designed for him to implement this new system, and it was thrust in his absence on Alberto Riveron and his uh, first lieutenant, Russell Yerk, and I don't think they were ready. And And, and so the decisions really in my mind, have reflected that. And, and so from that aspect of loan, I think the system is broken, and it's either going to take more experience on their part, and I'm thinking you know, back to Dean being involved with Replay since 1999 and putting the system together when it first came back. So it's going to take 
you know, more experience on their part, and maybe even a greater, you know, a greater look into how it could work better. Is it is it working good enough, or does it have the potential to work good enough with um, Riveron and Yerk, you know, making these decisions, or is it time to look and say we need to get the referee more involved again, or why not take a look at it, you know, totally and say is do might we be interested in the model of Major League Baseball and rotate referees and downfield officials into the office on their off weekends so that they can make these decisions they're the ones that are making the decision making the calls initially on the field i think you have to look at everything just like you have to look at everything as to what a catch is and and try to get that issue solved which by the way i think i can do um, I'm sounding like Donald Trump, like I could solve everything. Um, but um, but I, I think it's a very critical, maybe the most critical offseason in the NFL when it comes to officiating the rules and the department and replay. Mike, let's take it back out of the replay booth, put it on the field. The, the triplet crew included an umpire from Brad Allen's crew, a field judge from Jerome Boger's crew, a side judge from Cleet Blakeman's crew, a line judge from Carl Cheffer's crew. With all these new faces working together for the first time, I would think communication might be a problem. Is the concept of all-star crews working? Well, let me, let me correct you first. Um, I, I refuse to call them all-star crews. Um, they're mixed crews um, because, you know, you have per agreement with the union, same way when I was there, that you only worked one playoff game unless you got the Super Bowl. If you get the seven guys that got the Super Bowl, will have worked another game earlier, most likely in the round that's coming up this weekend. So what that means is that out of 17 positions, um, the seven positions on the field and the 17 officials working in each one of these positions, you're going at least 10 deep. So you're going you're going below the average. I mean, you 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 can't first year officials can't work, um, and if you don't make a standard, you don't work. It could be that your twelfth down twelfth rated down judge is working on the field um, in, in the um, in the playoffs. So it's not an all star crew, and it's another thing. I mean, not popular with the officials. But if you want to call, if you want to do all-star crews, then do all-star crews. But only go 28. Take your top 28 officials and put them in the four games in the wild card and the four games in the division. Advance the two best into the championships and the one best into the Super Bowl. That's an all-star crew. These are just mixed crews. Is and it- when you get mixed crews, there is a communication issue. I don't care what anybody tries to say. And and I think it reflects often when things start to go bad you have a hard time getting them back under control because you haven't worked with the officials, most of them, during the season. Triplett had one, his back judge. Hockley had none um, as part of his crew. Carinti, who was with us, none. So he worked with six different people that, that he hadn't worked with before. And maybe that contributed to the lack of almost forgetting about the 10-second runoff and the intentional grounding that... Uh, that that they had at the end of the game but you know when i was there i mean in my first three years from 2001 through one two and three my first three years i went with the crew basis and and i moved crews through the playoffs with 
exceptions if a guy was not eligible because he hadn't been in the league for five years. But we kept groups together. And to me, it was the right way to go. It is the right way to go. But the union wants more of their guys on the field, and their agreement with the league, you know, basically sets that standard. But uh, I think the the mixed notion is not good, and I will go to my grave thinking that because I've always been a crew-based guy. Well, I want to go back to what you said a minute ago about solving the catch problem, uh, because if you could do it, uh, I think we would all carry around on our shoulders for several days. Uh, uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's actually really simple. Two feet in, the ball's in his hands. End of story. Right. Uh, right. But what's your, what's your take? I, I don't... I don't think you can do that. And I think you have to stay with the concept of control two feet in time. Um, I, I get that. I think there's, you know, some protections there and player safety things that could factor in. So I don't think you'll ever get to that point. But here's, here's, here's the way I feel, and that is to treat them all the same. Okay, two, two things to me. Treat the catches the same, whether you're on your feet or going to the ground. So if you get control two feet or a body part um, other than two feet and you're on your way to the ground and you perform an act, you performed a a football move, you make a football move, then on your way to the ground, you've completed the process of the catch. And so Jesse James's play in the Pittsburgh-New England game, that becomes a touchdown. I mean, he got control, he got a knee, and then he turned and lunged and reached into... Everybody, I mean, everybody except those that know the rules inside and out and the, and the replay officials, to everybody it looked like, smelt like, felt like a catch and a touchdown. 50 drunk guys in a bar felt like a catch to them. The official that was covering the play felt like a catch to him. He signaled touchdown. But we're in this day now of the rule that this going to the ground, that the ground trumps everything and you have to hold on to the ball. I even argue with Dean Blandino, who works with me and I have great respect for. He said they made it this way to make it more consistent for the officials on the field. Well, wait a minute. And I say to him, if that's the case, well, why did they call the Jesse James play a touchdown on the field? And why did they call Des Bryant's play in Dallas a catch? And why did they call Calvin Johnson's play back in 2010? One signal touchdown, the other guy came in kind of sheepishly and went incomplete, and then they stayed there. It's, it's not logic. So my thing is, control two feet and a football move, whether you're on your feet or you're going to the ground, you've completed the process. And the last thing, and most critical thing, replay has got to get the hell out. Replay has got to review the factual part of the play. So if replay wants to look and says that it got control and two feet, replay can look at that, that's fine. But the subjective element of time that the officials see and rule on, it needs to stay with them. And it's, you know, it's not to go, shouldn't go to replay and have them look at it at a different speed and, and impose a different standard back in my days it was so simple you know and the 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 rule itself was so simple of course this was before instant replay but the rule basically said if there's any doubt rule it incomplete that's what the rule said i mean it was literally that simple and make the rest of it the same and i think we have a much simpler and cleaner and understandable um play to deal with well you're not going to get any 
complaint from us, and we've got about a minute left, Mike, but it seemed like replay was designed to correct obvious mistakes, but it's used for everything. So there's so many stoppages, there's no flow to the game. Yeah, and that, and that's that's becoming true in college, and um, right. and then again, of course, you got the standard that they're going away from. You know, you're almost going in neutral, looking at replay when you're supposed to go under the hood and say, okay, we're not going to change it until it's unless it's clear and obvious. I go back to Mike Patrick, um, you know, Clark. First year, he said in replay, if you go under the hood and the first time you look at the play, you see it's wrong, reverse it. But if you have to run it back and forth, frame by right. frame, then leave it. Leave right. it. It's, right. it's yeah. that close of a call. Leave it the way it is. But we've certainly gotten away from that standard. Couldn't agree with you more. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Uh, are we going to see it at the Super Bowl in Minneapolis? You will not. I'm going to take ah. my two-degree weather. I'm going to take my punishment um, this coming weekend and, and, not, uh, and not risk a second weekend there. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining us. You got it. Thanks, Mike. That was Fox Sports analyst Mike Pereira. Up next, two-minute drill with Dr. Data. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Gosling, and Ron Borges. We thought we'd call on our buddy once again, Jeff Triplett. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, that whistle means we're almost out of time. So, Gooseman, let's get to the two-minute drill. Carolina safety Michael Adams' late fourth-down interception of a Drew Brees pass that cost his team 16 critical yards of field position. Selfishness or stupidity? Neither. Impulsivity. And listen to me, kids. Don't be like this, Mike. I'm a believer in stupidity. Not every player is Einstein. Some are Jughead. How much credit do you give Tom Coughlin for Jacksonville's turnaround? Plenty. The more you see of Jacksonville, the more they look like Coughlin's Giants. Sans Eli. Well, you would give them the blame if they did nothing, so I'll give them the praise since they did something. <laughs> Was there one player who changed your perception of him in the wild card playoff run? Yes, sir. Blake Bortles. Hard to believe, but he's worse than I thought. <laughs> yes, sir. Mike Adams. I thought he went to college. <laughs> the Eagles are the top seed, but a home underdog this weekend. Is it a lack of respect or a lack of quarterbacking? It's a lack of Carson Wentz. It's a lack of a backup quarterback named Earl Morrill, the only guy who is favored. Well, John Gruden proved to be a better coach than broadcaster in his second go-round with the Raiders. Only if he doesn't hire Sean McDonough as his OC. I would say that wouldn't be that difficult to achieve. What is held in less regard by NFL teams, the Rooney Rule or the Concussion Tent? Alberta Riveron and the Catch Rule. I would say the Concussion Tent. They at least try to fake the Rooney Rule. Latavius Murray, Bill Murray, or Eddie Murray? Murray the K, the fifth Beatle. Ooh, the swing and soiree. No, Eddie Murray, because you can get a baseball Hall of Famer and a comedian all in one. <laughs> <laughs> Two for one, pretty good. Julius Pepper said he may retire. Are his 154 curse acts a ticket to first ballot Hall of Fame election? Yes, because look where 139 and a half got Jason Taylor. I would say no, because if you play defense, there's very few first ballot tickets. Will we remember the Titans after this weekend? Yes, we'll remember those latest speed bump for New England. No, we will be trying to forget the fact they were ever put in the playoffs. Pink will sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. Is there another color you'd prefer singing that anthem? Yes, Deep Purple, but only if Ian Gillen does the singing. <laughs> yes, Cream, the ultimate rock band. That's the enemy. We'd like to thank Bill Paul and Mike Pereira and Sam Cavaris for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.